Hi everyone, this is Sarah from Hamilton. Before we get into the main subject of this video, I want to say if you want to support this channel, please consider becoming a patron or YouTube member. For details, see below in the description box. At the third tier of both patronage and YouTube membership, I guarantee at least an hour of one-on-one -on -one discussion uh, over the phone or Zoom or whatever per month if you'd like to take advantage of that. And that's $20 on Patreon and $25 on YouTube because of the higher proportion which YouTube takes monthly from creators pay. Uh, but with that said, I want to make a brief video today about the nature of the return from Babylon and what exactly the return from Babylon is. And in order to understand what the return from Babylon is, one has to understand the way that typology works. Uh, typology does not work by having an Old Testament event and then a New Testament fulfillment such that there's one story and then that story is repeated once so that there's just a type and anti-type. A typology is something that's cumulative. And because it's cumulative, it it frames one's interpretation of those stories which echo the pattern of earlier stories. So here's an example. When you understand the kind of person that Moses is and what Moses' relationship to the nation is and what he's meant by God to do for Israel, and then you understand that the Philistines are descended from Egyptians, according to Genesis 10:13, and you understand that David's defeat of the Philistines and his despoiling of the Philistines, uh, which is then used to build up the Holy Temple in the days of his son, King Solomon, well, then you understand that all these things work together so that David's conquest of the Philistines is a kind of fulfillment or a recapitulation of the Exodus. Well, that tells you is that David is a Moses figure. But that also tells you other things, both about David and about Moses. It tells you, for example, that David is a prophet. David was one who stands in the council of God. He sees the form of the Lord. It also tells you that Moses is a royal figure, which helps explain why Moses is a sign of the Messianic king, why the Messianic king is a prophet like Moses. That's the way that type and anti-type work together so that one understands both stories in light of each other, um, so that even understood on their own terms, the stories come into sharper focus. So the big question here is about the nature of the return from exile, the return from Babylon. And the reason that this is an important question is because the Messianic age in the prophets and the Torah is always framed in terms of a new exodus. It is always framed in terms of Israel's redemption from their exile. In Deuteronomy 30, Israel was subject to the curses for disobedience prescribed in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. They become subject to those curses. They go into exile. Exile is being cut off from the land to which one belongs. It is death, separation from oneself. Um, and the return from that exile to which Israel is subject is then the occasion for the redemption of the heart, the circumcision of the heart, the enlightening of the nations, the coming of the Messiah, and so on and so forth. And yet Jesus comes 500 years after the apparent return from exile, and Jesus thus stands in an ambiguous relation, at least according to what most of us see, to the prophecies of the return from Babylon. This argument has been used by Orthodox Jewish apologists to argue against Christianity, but they are subject to the same or even a greater problem, because uh, for the Orthodox Jew, who rejects Jesus' messianic identity. The return from Babylon seems like it ought to have been a fulfillment, but not only does it not form the occasion for the dawn of the messianic age, it comes to no fruition at all. Because the return from Babylon sets the stage for the coming of Jesus, who does what he does, so that three centuries later, the emperor of the Romans is bending his knee to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and confessing him as the one true God of all the earth. But for the Orthodox Jewish apologists, that has no essential relation to covenant history. 
Its relation to covenant history is perhaps accidental, it's providential, but it does not stand in relation to what the prophetic promise says about the dawn of the Messianic Age. So in order to understand the way in which Jesus enacts the new exodus and how that relates to the return from Babylon, we need to have a more finely grained understanding of what exile and what these places are all about. In order to do that, we need typology. And if we want to have typology, we've got to go back to at least relatively near the beginning. So let's begin at the history of the family of Abraham in Genesis chapter 11. Well, what happens here is that God calls a single family, uh, Terah, Abram, and uh, Lot, representing uh, three distinctive generations in the family. But this, when God calls this family into the land of Canaan, into the land of their promised inheritance, the procedure works in multiple steps. So the family moves midway to the land of Canaan. They move to Haran. And then the older generation, that is Terah, dies in Haran. And then Abram moves the rest of the way into the land of inheritance. Now you should see here that this is what happens in the Exodus writ large. Israel comes out of Egypt. They then stop midway. They hang out in the wilderness for 40 years. The older generation dies off, and then the next generation completes their journey through the wilderness into the land of their promised inheritance. So we see here that there is a typological relationship between the movement out from Mesopotamia and the movement out from Egypt. But what's even more striking is that these two events stand in an analogous relation to each other that the return from exile, return from Babylon, does to the messianic accomplishment of Jesus. Just think about the return from where? From Babylon. Where's Babylon? Mesopotamia. Well, Babylon, uh, in English characters, BBL, it's the same word as, as Babel. The human architects of Babel meant that word to mean gate of God. Now, when it says it was called Babel because it means confusion, Moses is telling us something very significant about the way that names work in God's providence. What's the real reason why it was named Babel? Because it means confusion. What did the human architects of Babel think they were meaning by it? They thought they meant gate of God. It actually meant the inverse. That's a tangent. We're not going to get into that. Nimrod, the overseer of the Babel project, is the one who founds the uh, Babylonian and the Assyrian imperial cultures. This is described in Genesis chapter 10. These are the powers which will exile Israel later in their history and from which Judah is going to return from her exile in the time of King Cyrus. Well, think about what happens after Abram's family comes from Mesopotamia into the land of Canaan. They live in a land which they don't rule over. It's ruled over by foreign powers. They have to go to those foreign powers and stand in relation to them in order to receive protection. They sometimes need to go to those foreign powers to receive food. Their relationship to those foreign powers allows them to bear witness to the supremacy of the God of heaven to the Gentiles. When it says that Abram made souls in Haran, the word here is bara, this is talking about the souls that he made by the same way that God makes souls, that is, by the word. Abram proclaims the name of the Lord, and it is by that name that things are created, so that new people are created when people turn aside from their pagan gods and turn to the one true God. Gentile witness is a major theme in this period of history. Isaac and Gerar is digging wells, persistently witnessing to the Gentiles. Jacob seeks to have the Shechemites circumcised. Joseph goes down to Egypt and serves as chief counselor to Pharaoh and brings the name of God to the whole known world at that period in time. 
The story of Joseph resembles strikingly the story of Daniel. Daniel goes into exile. Daniel ascends to the right hand of a Gentile king and bears witness to the authority of the God of heaven. And in fact, the same thing is said of Daniel that was said of Joseph. That is, the spirit of holy God is in him. Not only so, both Daniel and Joseph are thrown unjustly into a pit, being accused falsely. In the lives of Daniel and Joseph, food is a major theme. You see it this at the first chapter of Daniel, and of course that is what the story of Joseph is all about. Point here is that there are many connections between this period of history and the lives of the patriarchs and the period after the return from Babylon. Both of them begin with a journey out of the very same place, Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia, which has just been textually associated with Babel or Babylon. Both of them feature the covenant people of God living in the land of Canaan, but not ruling over it. And it features that serving as an occasion for their being witnesses to the Gentile nations of the world. Now, this is a bit more of a complicated subject, but what corresponds to the descent into Egypt? So, in the latter half of the patriarchal period, uh, the uh, patriarchs and Israel's existence... Uh, gradually descends into oppression. Now, I think if you look at the prophecies of Daniel, you see that the pharaoh, corresponding pharaoh uh, in this period of history, which we might call a new patriarchal period, is in fact the dyad of the Herods and the high priests, which form out of the increasing corruption which comes in the uh, 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 latter part of the Maccabean period, in the Maccabean dynasty, or the Hasmonean dynasty, pardon me. I'm not going to uh, invest a huge amount of effort right now in demonstrating this, but I will just point out who are Jesus' principal enemies in the Gospels, who are the ones who actually have him executed. Well, it's the Jewish leadership. It's this uh, partnership between the Sadducees, who are associated with the high priestly class, uh, and the Herods, this um, kind of false parody of the Messianic throne line. Now we see when the patriarchs journey into the land, Abraham has a vision, and in this vision we're shown that their present sojourn in the land is not that by which they're actually going to come to possess it, rather they're going to come to possess it by going down into Egypt, coming back out again in a great exodus, and it's going to be 430 years. Now I think this resembles, in striking ways, what we read about in Daniel chapter 9. In Daniel chapter 9, the people are just now returning from exile, but God, through the angel Gabriel, comes to Daniel and says, this isn't how they're actually going to finally possess the inheritance God wants his children to have. Instead, what's going to have to happen is there's going to be an anointed one who's going to cut off, be cut off and make atonement. Now, anointed one in this context refers to the high priestly line. You can see this because he talks about anointing a most holy, right? So it's about the high priestly line. It's about the sanctuary. And the context for this is Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7, the son of man who is ascending on the clouds of heaven. This is a high priestly figure. The clouds of heaven correspond to the clouds of incense surrounding the high priest as he ascends through the holy place up to the holy of holies in the very throne of God to be ratified and vindicated in his reception of a kingdom, thus restoring the inheritance to Israel every year despite their sin. That is why righteousness is made full and iniquity is atoned for through that which is prophesied in Daniel chapter 9. So we see in both cases that there is a journey out of Mesopotamia into the land of promise. 
But that journey into the land of promise forms the broader context for the real redemption, the real exodus, the real covenant, which is going to guarantee the people their inheritance on a long-term basis, which is actually what God wants to exist. God doesn't want the patriarchal period to last in perpetuity. It is there so that they can prepare a place for Israel when they come into their own 430 years after what was said to Abraham in Genesis 15, Abram at that point in time. By the same token, the period of the return from exile is preparatory. It is meant to proclaim the name of God to the Gentiles so that Gentiles have a context for whom they're hearing about. When they hear about the uh, Messiah, they know roughly what that word means. When they hear about the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, even if they didn't believe in him, they know who is being spoken of. And there's also a context simply in terms of what is being done to the people of God during this period of time. People change through the experiences that they have. And the experiences that they have depend on the place and context which they are in. This is the way in which God hammered into Israel the lessons that he needed them to learn so that they might be the root onto which Gentile branches are grafted so that the world might be redeemed. So I hope you found this uh, somewhat helpful. Uh, if you enjoyed the video, please like and subscribe. Please consider becoming a patron or YouTube member or simply using the thanks button on a one-off basis. You can also schedule a call on a one-off basis through PayPal. See the details below. And I will see you next time.